0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to
1: be able to say, we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for
0: everyone. We are so happy to be here with friends and authors of a new best-selling book, William Stixrud and Ned Johnson, and the book is The Self-Driven Child. And. Tricia happens to know Ned personally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're just so excited you're here. So thank you for joining us. And it's so nice to meet you, Bill. So the first thing we want to ask you about is what inspired you to write
2: this book? So Ned and I have been friends for probably seven or eight years and we started lecturing together a few years ago and we lectured a lot on how do kids become self-motivated and we also lectured a lot on what does chronic stress do to a developing brain and do it to, to a developing child or adolescent. We started to to think about writing something up a couple of years ago and we're thinking that we talk a lot about motivation, about stress, about the, the importance of sleep and we wanted an organizing principle. And, and Ned said, you know, I think that, that everything that we talk about is, is really related to a sense of control. And we've known for years that, that a low sense of control is probably the most stressful thing in the universe. I mean, you can summarize what, what makes life stressful with the acronym N.U.T.S., novelty, unpredictability, threat, and a low sense of control. Mm-hmm. And, and the latter is probably the most stressful thing. And we also knew that motivation develops in kids if they have a sense of autonomy, and it doesn't, self-motivation doesn't d- develop unless you have a sense of control or autonomy over your own life. And so, we figured this must be a pretty big deal. If it's so highly related to stress, it's, it's stress tolerance. It's so high related to motivation. This must be a really big deal. And then we started to re- research this idea of sense of control, which is what our book's about. It's about how important it is for young people to have a sense of control over their own lives. And we found out that it's related to everything you could possibly want for your kid. It's related to physical health, all aspects of mental health, longevity, academic success, career success. So, we basically wrote a how-to manual for parents about how can you increase or to develop the sense of control or sense of autonomy in kids.
0: So, is the book, is it, it's a manual for parents, but is it a manual for kids too? I mean, how, how obviously the parents are going to read the book, but is it more geared toward what the children should be doing or what the parents should be doing?
3: Probably more towards what parents should be doing. I mean, certainly when we talk about things like radical digital downtime and the importance of sleep and meditation, which, you know, you're both big fans of. I mean, mm-hmm. those are things that apply to all brains, you know, parents and kids. But we wrote the book principally aimed towards parents because, one, parents buy books. <laughs> right. And two, because, you know, every parent that we know loves their children and wants them to be happy and successful. And there are all sorts of messages out there. And we really feel that we've weaved together some of the best sciences that's there and and certainly our combined 60 years of working with adolescents. The things that we've seen really are effective with other children, including our own. And so, so the advice here is really for parents who love their kids and want their kids to be successful, including the ability to tolerate stress well and to be intrinsically motivated. These are really the, the tools for families to work collaboratively with their children so that they can be a successful. as as everyone would hope would
1: you describe stress what's stress what is that and what does it do to the the child's
2: brain i mean what is it so stress is what happens when you experience a new situation that's nuts this novelty and it's when your fight-or-flight response tricks in and you initially get a burst of adrenaline and then if you're stressed for a long time you get cortisol cortisol is very important in emergencies But high levels of cortisol in your brain and your body are terrible. And so certainly one of the main points of our book is that the last thing we want for kids is to be chronically stressed because they have high levels of cortisol in their brain and the body. And that being chronically stressed changes the brain in a way that makes kids more vulnerable, becoming anxious and depressed. And that over time, if they get anxious and depressed as kids or teenagers, it just changes the brain in a way that makes them more likely that that as adults, they'll have this recurring anxiety and depression. And so certainly one of the take-home points for our book is that we want kids, one of the major goals, I think, of child-rearing education should be to foster the development of a healthy brain.
1: need And you're going to tell us how to foster that, right? And that is about reducing stress. I know with us, with Ned, he would explain to me that there's certain years in children's age, that their brain is more at a place to be molded?
3: Yeah, Did yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we're big fans of, of uh, um, Paul Tuff's book, uh, How Children Succeed, and he really looks at what happens to brains of really infants sort of prenatally through the first couple of years. And that's the, the sort of the initial really big period of brain development. But the other period that's really important is adolescence. Mm-hmm. In part because it's a huge opportunity, the brain growth in adolescence is enormous. We have an opportunity, kids have an opportunity to shape their brains by their own thinking. Right, kids become capable of metacognition. And so, they can become active participants in how they, they shape their own brains in healthy ways that they can become highly motivated. So, yeah. So, my feeling, I work with so many kids who are, you know, they're focused, they want to be super academic, but so many of them are sort of are too stressed all the time. And I'll tell them, look, I really want you to be successful, but the most important work of adolescence as we see it is developing the brain you're going to have for the rest of your life. So, let's make sure that we're We're approaching success in ways that are consistent with also developing a healthy brain.
2: Hmm.
0: So, what are some of the practical techniques you describe in your book for parents to try
2: So, I test kids for a living. I'm a neuropsychologist and I do neuropsychological testing for a living. For the first 14 or 15 years of my career, I also did a lot of psychotherapy. And I had experiences like this. I'd I'd have a 35-year-old in therapy and I'd say, so why are you here? And and they'd say, I'm here because I feel like for the first 35 years of my life, I've been living up to somebody else's expectations. I want to figure out what's important to me. I had experiences. I, I work with a lot of underachievers, and I used a technique from family therapy for the last 30 years where I say, So, if you don't turn in an assignment, who's most upset? And invariably it is the mom who's next most upset, my dad, who, who next most, my, my teacher, my my therapist, the kid's never on the list. The my teacher. sister, yeah yeah, <laughs> my, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. My grandmother, you know, the kid, the kid's never on the list. And it seems there's something wrong with that picture. And I learned that one of the most powerful things for a therapist to remember is don't work harder. To help your client solve their problems than they do because they'll end up depending on you, and so many years ago I wrote an article for McCall's magazine on how not to fight with about homework, and what I said is tell your kid I love you too much to fight with you about your homework, and what do you do that then <laughs> and you say I'm willing to do anything I can to help you. But I'm willing to be a consultant. I'm willing to be your homework consultant. I'm willing to set this at a consulting hour. I'll be with you from 6.30 to 7.30 every night. But I'm not willing to fight with you and have all this stress. You're the most precious thing in the world to me. And I'm not willing to act like it's my job to make you do it. I couldn't make you do it. And if I try, I'm going to weaken you because you're going to think that I'm responsible for getting your work done and not you. So, the first thing is the the second chapter in our book is called I Love You Too Much to Fight With You About Your Homework. It's about this idea of, of thinking about yourself more as a consultant than as a, an enforcer or a taskmaster or the kid's manager. When you change the energy in this way, it's beautiful. It's less stressful. It's powerful. But will they do their paper? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a great point. I
3: mean, you know, we work on the theory that kids want to be successful.
0: Right? <laughs> Right. They want That's their
3: li- they want their lives to work out. And what happens a lot is that I think that the help that we're trying to give, it's the support that we're trying to give to lift a kid to them can feel like we're pushing them. And I don't know about you, when people push me, my default reaction is to resist it. And so we see so many kids who are resisting what's in their own best interest simply because they feel that someone is pushing them. And so we have the story in the book about my son when he was in fifth grade and was sitting doing homework and, and mom, his mom was, was helping him with something. And my wife's a, a teacher and, and remarkably academic and, you know, like so many moms just really good at all this stuff. And she asked him, you know, why don't you do such and such? You know, and most questions like that that are directed at children sort of sound like a question, but they're really an accusation with a question mark at the right. end, right? And so, he responded a little bit defensively. He so, said, well, you, you didn't remind me. And I'm like, oh, wait, when I come running out there with a big timeout, like I said, look, pal, it's not your mom's responsibility to make sure you do this it's your work. First of all, she's already done fifth grade. So, so let's, let's (laughs) give her that. And and second, and then I looked at her and said, lady, you got to be kidding me. Of course, he thinks you're going to remind him because you always do. You always have. I Mm -hmm. said, so it's a Bill's point. If we're going to change this dynamic, Mm -hmm. we need to step way back because he's already got, already has the message that he's not really the ultimate. The buck doesn't really stop with him. Mm -hmm. It stops, you know, somewhere else. So, we had a great experience of stepping back and he really did botch. Them. I mean, he got fifty twos on test because he studied the wrong chapter. Mm-hmm. Well, do you know why he studied the wrong chapter? And, and we got a whole conversation about what to do better. And as, exactly as Bill described, we got to be consultants. And now his uh, uh, parole officer says he's doing great. No, I mean, he's a, you know, I mean, you know, he's clean us over for three right, months. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. You know? And, he, and he's, he's doing great. I mean, he's more successful than I would have asked him to be. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, because 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 I'm, you know, occasionally I say, hey, do do you want some help with that? And most of the time I'll say, no, I got it. Awesome, but he knows that I'm there, and sometimes he will ask for my help. Can you can you look over this paper because I'm not sure it makes sense the way right. I want to. Sure, happy to, and then we'll talk through it. But more importantly, we had a converse, uh, experience maybe three four weeks ago, and his school had a big dance, and he's a little geeky like his dad, uh, and he got his uh, he got his first invitation to go to a to a party after the dance, and so he was excited. He was a little apprehensive. This is novel for him, right? And but he asked me. We we're out for a walk, and he said, "Dad, what do I do if if people are drinking alcohol there?" Man, what a great opportunity, right? That's like rather than me saying when you do this right, well, what do you think? I mean, that was the kind of conversation that every parent hopes when your kid is looking for advice mm-hmm. that you get to be at least one of the authorities rather than having them run, you know, to everyone else except you. Mm-hmm. And so if you spend your interpersonal capital on things as ridiculous as most of the homework the kids get these days, and there's nothing left for the things that really matter, boy, that's a lousy trade-off. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I can't wait for my kids to call me and say, Well, I'm a consultant now. <laughs> and I've got office but, hours, so call me back No, I'm it, it works <laughs> you
2: know, it, it works and, and another aspect of this, think about yourself Not as somebody who knows, always knows what's best for your kid Or, or your job is to make your kid be a certain way because There's a chapter in our book, it's on kids as decision makers Basically our formula is, you want to say, it's your call as much as possible When you help kids make informed decisions You help mm-hmm. them through the, through the pros and cons of a situation they make good decisions for themselves because they want their life to work. And we think that the best message you can give an adolescent, particularly, and, and an older child, is I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. And from our point of view, that's what we want teenagers to do. We want right, them to- allow
0: do. them to make a mistake so they can learn.
2: Right, because when you say it's your call, teenagers are ruthlessly honest with themselves. Mm-hmm. If you try to force them, as you, as you said, yeah. Ned, they get defensive and, and, and they go into denial oftentimes. But you say, right. nobody's going to force you. This is going to be your call. I want to help you make a good decision. Kids make really good decisions for themselves. And I have all kinds of experience. People wanting me to convince their kid to do something. And I say, I don't do that. But I'm happy to help your kid make a good decision. And they almost always do.
0: Well, I like that because I think that's what life really is, is decisions. So you're a consultant as a parent rather than an enforcer, say. How does leading by example as a parent, I mean, is that how... Let's say your kids don't wanna have a consultant, but then what does the parent do? Do they lead by example? and hope that the child follows? Or how does that work?
3: Well, hugely, hugely beneficial. I mean, because our kids are, they're listening to us sometimes, but they're watching us all the time, mm-hmm. right? So I, for instance, you know, Bill and I are both meditators and I started doing TM about five years ago. And my kids have been watching me do this and just Reese, my son's again a sophomore. He said, dad, what's TM like? Mm-hmm. Awesome, right? So, I mean, he's been watching this all the while. When my kids were little and they wouldn't get enough sleep or my wife and I keep them out too late or something, I would say things like, so tomorrow I want you to work to be a little bit more patient with yourself and with other people. Because when you're tired, people make you a little bit more upset more easily. So you just want to be patient. Mm-hmm. So having done that for two, three, four, five, ten 10 years, now if I'm a little surly or a little cranky, they look at me and say, dad, are you okay? Do you get enough sleep? And it's it's fantastic, right? And it's just completely wired into them. I mean, the idea that, that our kids are going to pick up good habits that we ourselves don't
2: have is pretty small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of my clients who's reading our book sent me an email a couple of weeks ago, and she said that, I said, my eighth grader, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And he smiled and he hugged me and he said... Is something wrong with you, mom? <laughs> but the, the, the other point about this is, is that we aren't saying that kids should make all their own decisions and should run the roost. That the best style of parenting is what's called authoritative, where we set limits. Kids need boundaries. We have to structure and handle things for them that they aren't developmentally mature enough. But we don't want to take responsibility for stuff that's really theirs. We don't want to make decisions for things they could decide. We want to do, don't do things for them that they can do. And we don't want to manage stresses and problems for them. That they can manage on their own or with our help.
1: But you know, I was just looking at our notes, and you all talk about a parent as a non-anxious presence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: talk to us about that, because that seems like that's an important ingredient in this
3: plan. We borrowed this term from a guy named Edwin Friedman, who was a consultant, and he was a rabbi, and he worked with all sorts of organizations, from corporations to churches, as well as families. And the idea is that stress is contagious. And if I'm really anxious, I'm going to make the people around me really anxious. And when people are anxious and their amygdala is firing and the prefrontal cortex where all of those executive functions of organizing, planning, decision-making, motivation, self-control, mental flexibility, those things just kind of go off the rails. My work with all, doing all this test prep stuff, kids will come in and they'll be upset. They're frustrated, got a bad grade in school, a bad whatever. And then almost invariably they'll say, Oh God, and what am I going to tell my mom? She's going to hit the roof. My dad's going to be so. And you think, Holy smokes. Our kids have, have gotten the message that when things are really hot, we run away from your parents because they're going to be even more upset than you are. And people can feel if you're anxious, you can't fake being a non-anxious mm, presence. so true. Right? I mean, we, true. we talk about this, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah everything's going to be fine. Here, <laughs> right? And then, so do they, do they trust what they feel or do they trust the, their parents mm-hmm. who they've spent a lifetime, you know, mm-hmm. studying their faces? And so it's just, it's a really big deal um, in part because if you want to be effective as a consultant, if you're less anxious, if you can take the long view and say, no, this is a hot mess right now, but I have confidence that you're not going to be, you're not going to be stuck here, you know, age 22, the way you're, you're stuck at age 15, it's enormously helpful for us to do that for our kids and give them confidence that this is going to work out somehow. I don't know how yet, but it's going to work out somehow. Yeah.
2: I've had the experience many, many times in the last 30 years of sitting with a, with parents who are, are talking about a kid's problems. And one of them breaks into tears and says, I just want him to feel good about himself. And after they stop crying, I I say, I think we can more convincingly, he can feel good about himself if we aren't worried sick about him. We have an age of just, there's an epidemic, that's the right word, of anxiety and depression in young people. And parents are desperate to know what they can do, but it's counterintuitive to think that one of the most important things we can do is manage our own anxiety and manage our own stress. Because in addition to, to stress being contagious. Calm is contagious. Mm -hmm. And we know that it's much easier to soothe an infant if you're calm. If you have a three-year-old who's having a tantrum, it's much easier to to deal with it if you you can stay calm. With infants, what they need is they need warmth and responsiveness. And when is that never a good idea? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So true.
0: You talk about sleep. And in a world where we have long school days and tons of homework, how do you... Incorporate that into your family's life when.
3: Well, I mean there's, there, so much there's, there's a on. lot to be said about it. One of the things to know is that when you're sleep deprived, your amygdala, this threat detector in your brain, is about 60% more reactive. And it makes all those executive functions, all those things you count on to make things go well, they go kablooey. And so what I see, too many kids, they do everything that they have to, and then they sleep with whatever's left over. And my feeling is sort of like the rule out of personal finance, you pay yourself first and you say, I need eight hours of sleep. And then, you know, and then with the other sixteen hours that How am I going to spend those hours? What am I going to do rather than taking on everything at once? Because it's simply that rested brains work better. Rested brains learn better. Rested brains are more stress tolerant. You know, rested athletes are more athletically successful. It's pure basic science so it's hard to you can't make your kid go to sleep right but you can really think about you know together how can we figure out a way to make sure that you're well rested because everything that you care about you're going to be more successful including emotional control we had this kid who came the other day who was super super bright but a little some executive function weaknesses and i was explaining do you ever notice how when you're really tired you feel like people around you are more kind of irritating right (laughs) so do you ever notice how your your mom gets under your skin and he looks at me and without missing a beat he said my god I must be tired all the time.
0: (laughs) It's so true. So, so what I'm hearing you say is we need to flip our schedules. We need to get our eight hours. I mean, that's our assignment is to get the eight hours of sleep in and then figure out how we can get our homework done in whatever's left.
2: Not getting enough sleep does the same thing to your, to your brain as chronic stress. It's really a form of chronic stress. And so, if,
1: not getting enough sleep is a form of chronic stress yes, or yes, it causes
2: it, chronic stress? Both. It's considered, it does the same thing physiologically mm-hmm. to the brain and body as being chronically stressed even if you're well rested.
1: And how does that <laughs> manifest itself in the body then? You said it's the same cortisol.
2: thing. So, it's increased cortisol, you get decreased immune function mm-hmm. and all things that stress does, insufficient sleep does too. We have to have a sea change. We have to have a revolution here. The idea that three hours of homework, when there's no evidence for even in high school that doing more than two hours of homework contributes to learning. Because the brain, I mean, kids forget 90% of what they learn within two months of being tested. So the idea that it's more important to cram all this crap into their head and not sleep is crazy. It's not we
0: working t- on either end. Yeah, in the It's book a we double-edged
2: say, sword. Yeah. yeah. In the book, we say if, if we were teachers, we'd much rather teach a kid for four hours. Who slept for eight hours? Then teach them for eight hours. They slept for four. I mean, it's just a no-brainer.
1: Because I think what you say in your book too is that when a child is stressed or anyone is stressed, and you just said it, they're not gonna absorb. They're not going to learn. Because well, what's going on? Well, I mean, it's the same it just thing. They, they just really can't, even though they might try, right? The brain won't let them.
3: Imagine if you said, I have tonight's winning lottery tickets. I'm mean, the numbers. No, you just got to hold these in mind. And as you did that, you then pulled out a loaded revolver or a, a cage full of rats and opened the middle <laughs> of the table. Where's my focus going to go? I can't help it. I can't help it because when I'm threatened, when I feel threatened, I pay attention to the threat.
2: Right, right. We have to. Well, And when when you're tired, I mean, you can watch TV, you can stay up late watching TV because it doesn't take very much attention to watch TV, but you can't learn when you're tired because it requires focus. It requires really active working memory to get something that you're learning into your memory stores. And sleep itself is just hugely related to, to learning. Because basically, the stuff you learn in the day while you're sleeping, the brain integrates it and organizes and correlates it and makes new insights that you didn't have when you're awake. And so, if you deprive the brain of that, it's just so counterproductive yeah. that one of the things that we're going to really work on and when we finish promoting this book is really the, the kind of just promoting this revolution about what's important in life.
0: Yeah. yeah. So when you're stressed, last question about sleep. When you're stressed, it's hard to get to sleep. So what do you recommend for people to do?
2: The things that help people sleep, certainly exercise really helps people sleep. We're big fans, as you are, of meditation. And many people find that the regular practice of meditation lowers their stress levels and they sleep better. And a lot of kids that I see have ADHD and they're just, they're night owls. And no matter what, they can't fall asleep. And, and many kids will take a low dose of melatonin to facilitate drowsiness. Some kids use bright light early in the morning. That changes the timing of the melatonin production and make them fall asleep easier. But, and certainly, arguably one of the main things for people who are anxious and stressed, is not using technology before you go to bed, mm-hmm. and not, not sleeping with your phone in your room.
1: Right, not sleeping with your phone in
2: the room. Yeah, yeah. I, every darn week I buy. I buy. Love this. I,
3: buy so I, <laughs> I have students who so they'll talk about the phone and da da da, and how it's and, and then I'll invariably ask, where does your phone sleep? And they look like what? And I say, well, by my bedside table. And I say, it should charge in the kitchen. And they look at me and they, and they go back and forth. And I, of course, they're not going to win this argument because the science is on my side. And then they'll, okay. and invariably they'll say, well, I, I use it for my alarm clock. And then I look at them and say, so... You go into an independent school. So what you're telling me is you live in either a really expensive neighborhood or your parents are paying you know tens of thousands of dollars a year for an independent school. And they're paying me hundreds of dollars an hour as a test prep and $100 a month for an iPhone or whatever. And nobody, including your Nana, can come up with 14 bucks for an alarm clock. And so every week I have Amazon Prime. Every week a kid gets alarm. What's your favorite color? I'll get your alarm clock. Every single week. <laughs>
1: That's that's good. Or you use Alexa, right? Alexa wakes me up. <laughs> oh, okay. When you talk about stress related mental health problems.
2: Yeah.
1: Can you expand on that? And, and you talk about that. We are at an epidemic of anxiety and depression. You know Why is that? And how, what do you see happening?
2: There's a woman at San Diego State by the name of Jean Twenge, who has studied generational differences. And what she found in the early 2000s was that adolescents and young adults in the early 2000s were five to eight times more likely to experience symptoms of, and report symptoms of anxiety disorder and depression in young people at the height of the Great Depression in the World War II, the Vietnam War, and now, it's she just wrote a paper, she said, in the last six years, she's never seen before, the, the dramatic spike in anxiety and depression. A recent study found a 37% increase in depression in adolescents in the last six years. One of the hypotheses is it has to do with social media, and particularly the effects on girls. But we also think that the fact that people sleep so much less, adults and kids, that technology makes life go faster, it makes life more stressful. And certainly the perception that had, one of the things we talk about in the last two chapters of our book, is this crazy idea that somehow the road to success is incredibly narrow, and only the people who are good at everything or the straight A students are going to be successful, which makes life so much more stressful for everybody.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, if, I mean, if we have this idea that only, the, only people who are top 10% in school are going to be successful, so 90% of kids go, why even bother, right, right? why even bother? And the, and the people who are in the top 10% are desperate to hold on to that, right, and it, because if I fall out of that, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but it must be really bad because I, everyone tells me that if I, only if I go to an Ivy League school, I'd be successful. And of course, there are advantages to going to Ivy League schools, but how many people do you know in your lives who are successful? I mean, for how many of them do you even know where they went to college, much less what was it? Was it one of the most select, selective universities in the country? And, and we just, we want to give kids a very different model. You know, America is remarkably tolerant that there's so many second, second chances. And to know that and say, really, you're having a hard time for now. But let's not worry about it. So let's figure out where we get you back on the path. And whether it's next week or next month or next year, Mm -hmm. it's totally, totally fine. Yeah.
1: Um, Can you talk to us, and I know I've asked you this before, about what happens to oftentimes the children, it's not their fault. Like they're in a situation where their parents are divorced and right. the mom, could you go through that and what happens and really about resilience yeah. that built?
3: Yeah. I mean, so, so, I mean, a lot of kids that I work with, I and mean, I have kids where, you know, they lost a parent, right? I mean, cancer is probably the worst one, right? Because it's that unpredictability. It's fine. It's terrible. It's fine. It's going to be okay. And you don't know. It. And that chronic stress is really tough. If you have, if you have a sibling who's got a health issue or a, or a profound learning disability, so much of The attention goes to that kid and the other children sit around and they try to be perfect, be perfect. Don't rock the boat. I can see the mom and dad are already so stressed out. It's really, really hard on their brains. And so one of the things that I say to kids is that, you know, the, the reactions that you're having right now, you know, I know they're, they're, they're completely normal because I know that you have a human brain, right. right? But these reactions aren't necessarily helping you. But so many things that bedevil kids, you know, in high school, adolescents, or even as kids, they're working through it. But a lot of times, whether it's ADHD or anxiety, these are issues of chemistry. You have a chemical problem, not a character problem. And so people add to their under by performance by beating themselves up. and so say, you can't do that. But let's talk about the things that will help improve your chemistry, sleep, meditation, Spending more time with mom and dad where you're loving each other and having fun, not fighting about homework. All these things that can change more dopamine, less cortisol, more serotonin, Mm -hmm. more oxytocin and chemically change your brain. So, it's simply easier for you to feel like doing the things that you actually do want to do because you want to be successful.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, the idea that the child feels it's their fault how specifically do you work with that? What do you, I mean, meditation comes to my mind, yeah. but not all children are open to yeah, that. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And, and we talk about collaborative problem solving, right? When kids are having a problem, say, you know, would you like some help with that? Right? You know, and, and have these open conversations because oftentimes their thinking is just, it's a little disordered, right? Mm. And they may have absorbed this from school. I'm always particularly worried about the kids who say very little hmm. because it doesn't mean they're not thinking a lot. They're not verbalizing. This is part of so, where we go back to trying to be open and
2: have these conversations. it. Yeah.
3: Airing it is the
2: first step. And a lot of kids who, who have negative views about themselves or, or feel that they're to the blame for things, the more you try to talk them out of it, the, the more they hang on to it. And again, it's, for me, it's a matter of changing the energy. And I see a lot of kids who think they're stupid or that nobody likes them. And, and I'll say to them, has, has anybody ever tried to talk you out of it? And they say, Yeah, my, my parents, but, but they don't really know. And I say, well, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I'm not going to try to take it away from you. But I really see it differently. And if you want, I'll be happy to share my angle on it. And if you do it like that, if you don't just become another person hammering the kid to try right. to, you know, that, that stuck doors, you know, they get stuck harder the more you try to pull on them. And so we want to change the energy. And we say, I've got a different angle. And yeah. I'd love to share it with you if you want. And we're always asking permission. We're always seeking kids' buy-in for our input, yeah. for our advice, for our help. Mm-hmm. because we don't want to try to force advice or help or another point of view on a kid if he's just chronically instinctively resisting it And mm-hmm. part right. when
3: you do that the stress reaction goes up yeah. and then again now you're having a conversation with a kid who's not using his executive functions you don't have the rational part you're not having a conversation with the rational part of his brain you're having a conversation with a fight fighter or, or freeze part of his brain
0: right Right. And I I would think that by saying to the child, yeah, that's ridiculous, that's wrong, you know, you're brilliant, it's yeah, yeah. ridiculous, it, you shouldn't feel that way, is dismisses them and they feel not heard.
3: Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, I, I was watching this with my, my wife's a Latin teacher, my daughter's taking Latin. She's like, I just can't do this. Well, she has a 95 average in there. So all the evidence suggests that you can. And my wife was trying to vocalize that. And I came back around later and I said, well, so w- what's, what's hard for you right now? Well, it turns out at the time she was having a bad relationship with her teacher and it was, it was an emotional thing. I just can't do this because of the emotion. And so when, well, tell me more about this. Well, what do you think would help? May I offer you some advice on that? And when you say things like may I offer some advice again, because they feel in control, we don't have that it's going to be forced I mean, and we had a much more productive conversation my wife was completely right she could do the work but we weren't really getting at the at the source of the problem by trying to contradict her facts we needed to, we need to ask a lot more questions mm-hmm. to get to the part where we really could help mm-hmm.
2: The kids I see, who, who, many of whom are struggling in school, the one thing I tell them when I start testing is, I hope I find stuff that you suck at. There's <laughs> successful people, <laughs> successful people. I don't tell that to five-year-olds, day, right. but, but, <laughs> that all. but, but I, successful people in this world, they're good in some things and they suck at other things and they try to make a living doing the things they're good at. And I also did tell them that I flunked out of graduate school the first time I went and I had a 2.8, I graduated from college, from high school with a 2.8 grade point average and I only needed a 2.5 to get into University of Washington, I still kick myself for heavy, waste all But <laughs> <laughs> <Extra laughs> you know? But I just, I, I tried to, to, to make kids understand that in this world, it's about developing yourself. It's about developing what you can contribute to this world. It's mm-hmm. not about your friggin' grades all the time. And, and, and it's about what's important to you and developing your own values. And failing at stuff is oftentimes the best thing that could possibly happen to you.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there ever, I mean, because I see people who go through life as one thing and then they they're 65 and they've discovered this whole other side of themselves how i mean i don't know what why that came to mind yeah, yeah. but it just made me think of when you're trying to develop children and adolescents that sometimes people don't really discover things yeah
3: yeah right. we we have this metaphor where we talk about sort of children as, as as trees and a lot of parents are sort of like edward scissorhands where they want to shape <laughs> them you know in these beautiful yeah. little berries, often and they in their in their own model <laughs> right but the problem is you may not know what kind of tree you have Right, and so if you want to work on the root system, right, in part because you know really healthy roots are what allow to develop a tree that can handle really tough storms. And as much as we like to would like to protect our children and have nothing bad ever happen to them, we can't do that. There's no guarantee because you know man makes plans and and, and God laughs, right? Mm-hmm. And we all have had things like boy, this was not this is not the way I planned that. If we can help kids, you know, grow however they're going to grow. And to Bill's point earlier. But the idea is that there's this really narrow path, if you believe that there's only this one narrow path, you don't, you have these blinders on and you don't keep your eyes open to, you know, a, a side road, some back country, which may be so much more fruitful. And oftentimes that's why people only get to it by, by age 65 when they're retired and they go, because they, they've been so on this path forever and they just, they didn't feel it was safe to explore other directions. And, and gosh, you know, wouldn't it be better to explore that as an adolescent?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I love the tree analogy. Yes. Of, yeah, because I mean, we do want to prune away at our children, <laughs> but we should be working on the we roots. Really didn't work. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we just prune and prune and prune more. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it feels better. It feels better for us. Safer. But I'm not sure yeah. it better for the tree. Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in your book, you talk about a young man saying something, or it was a young woman saying that I'm not 35 or what was
3: that? <laughs> <laughs> we get this. I mean, it was, it was a girl I worked with who's a fantastic, fantastic human being. And her grades have been slipping, you know, fifth grade, you know, A and then A minus and then B And her parents getting more and more anxious. And the more anxious they were, the more they try to control her. Mm-hmm. And the more they to kind of control her, the more the grades were. And it was, it was rough. And I had this great conversation with, I guess she was 13. And she said, you know, my dad is the smartest man I know. And he was really quite remarkable. She was, but he, she said, but his ways don't work for me. I don't have the brain of a middle-aged man. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm glad you don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? You know, we could be the, having a midlife crisis right <laughs> now. And
3: for all the moms who, who have fully developed prefrontal cortexes, and, and, and they can see the best way to do this, but their 13-year-old boys can't, I very as gently as I can, say, my suspicion is it's been a really long time since you had the brain of an adolescent boy, Mm -hmm. right?
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. How does the brain, you know, we always hear that the brain is fully developed at this age and that age. And is can you kind of go through that?
2: So, a, a lot of development happens in the first six years. But the brain is, is like 90% of its size by, by age six. The most important thing for our purposes is that the emotional parts of the brain that have to do with sensing and reacting to threat and regulating emotion, I mean, those parts tend to be up and running by the time you're 11 or 12. And, and, but the prefrontal cortex that, as Ned says, mediates the executive functions. It, it does the planning. It can think logically. It can put things in perspective. So it does planning and organization and judgment. It. Not the cognitive functions of the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. not mature until age twenty five plus minus three, and the emotional regulation. My kids aren't fully developed <laughs> well, yeah, that. <laughs> Okay, that, that, that explains, I, I, that explains I, I, things I, for us. I, 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 lecture, yeah, <laughs> I lecture about the five most important things I've learned about kids' brains, and this is the most important because so many of the problems that kids see when have when they're 13 or 15 or 17, it's just a matter of an immature prefrontal cortex. And if you have confidence in kids' development, you have confidence that they want their life to work and that the prefrontal cortex eventually comes online and it changes everything, it's really very encouraging. Mm-hmm.
1: It's really encouraging. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's just, those women who have immature husbands. It's yeah. you know because uh, right. men tend to be slower than women too. Yeah, It uh, makes me think. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had yeah, a
3: guy yeah, yeah. I worked with some while ago, and, and he was he really bad ADHD and executive function weakness, and and I was making that point that Bill made, and making this point this dad, and he looked at me in exasperation. He said. Are you sure he has a prefrontal cortex? I'll
2: ask question with that Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, someone said that Jessica Seinfeld instagrammed your book.
2: Is we, that she right? Did she did? We were
3: pretty, we were pretty jazzed, and, and and Bill and I do our best not to live on social media, right? And so then you should have seen me sitting there for about an hour and a half after that afternoon, going, "How the heck do I make an Instagram account so I can thank her properly?"
1: Yeah. Whatever happens,
3: yeah, you that can, I got a young yeah. person to help me. Yeah, it was. Yeah. We were really, we were really, we were really jazzed. It was very kind of her. Oh,
1: that's exciting. But the book so is amazing. Awful. Is there anything else we didn't touch on that you want to share and um, tell people?
2: Yeah. A couple. One aspect in our chapter on being a non-anxious presence, we recommend that people meditate, that parents take good care of themselves and get enough sleep and that kind of stuff. But we also talk about things like taking a long view, that all of our fear as parents is about kids getting stuck. So it's really about the future. They're going to get stuck and they're not going to get better. And in my experience of 40 years working with kids is that almost never happens. I mean, the kids go through stuff and they get out of it. And we also make the point that one of the best things when I used to do therapy with parents, I'd say, let's set our highest goal is just enjoying your kid. When you enjoy a kid, the kid perceives himself as a joy-producing organism mm-hmm. as opposed to a frustration or anger or annoyance-producing organism. And especially when kids aren't doing well, parents often have the idea that somehow they're responsible to maintain a disapproving attitude most of the time. So, the kid will get the idea that it's not okay to, not to do well. But actually, what we want to do is we want to maintain that connection. We want to in, in just enjoy our kids as much as we can. That, that's one of the best things we can do for them.
3: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent point. And we end the book by saying, by, by acknowledging that, you know, that you've you heard this before, but but people forget most of what you tell them, including our kids, are going to forget most of what we say. And they're going to forget a whole bunch of, of, of what we do for them. But what they remember is how we made them feel, right? And this is what this whole idea of a sense of control is. It gets wired into your brain, which you feel repeatedly. And for us, if you want to have kids who are going to be happy and successful and, and go off and live life, you know, with courage, and with joy, the things that we'd like them to come away feeling from us, our parents, the most important thing to them in the world, you know, is that they feel loved and that they feel trusted and they feel supported. And last one for the sense of control, that they feel capable. And if we make it our our project to wire those feelings into them, then it's it's really easy to have confidence that as Bill said that they're gonna make good decisions and even when things don't go well, they're gonna figure that out as well. Because we only have them for a very short period of time. And then really once they're off to college, it's really on them. And we want to have these things wired into their brains.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Such amazing information. <laughs> yes. Thank you both yeah. for being with us today.
1: Thanks you for uh, And writing this amazing book. Are you guys ready for the rapid fire questions? Yes. Doors are
3: rapid fire We're going to have our rapid fire questions.
0: Okay. Um, so, <laughs> we ask all of our guests the same questions. And the first question is mm-hmm. what book do you think everyone should read? <laughs> I know what book everyone should read. Yeah. Trishan. I think everyone should read The Self-Driven Child. It's an awesome
2: book. I, I, I did a radio show in Tampa about the book. And one of the listeners sent a text in it and said, if I were the king, I'd make all the hospitals in the United States put The Self-Driven Child in the bag of stuff that parents take home after just delivering a baby. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah. That, that, yeah.
3: And, and because my, my parents raised me to be a very polite I think it would be bad form for me to contradict our hostesses. So I'll I'll, I'll, go with you. So moving,
0: let's move to the next one. Um, What quote brings you strength and
2: peace? I would say for me, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who brought Transcendental Meditation to the world, um, once said, the world is as it should be. And somebody said, well, Maharishi, you, you work 22 hours a day trying to improve the world. He said, that's also as it should be. The idea that, that the craziest idea really for me is that somehow the world or, or we or our kids are, are supposed to be different than they are right now.
3: Um, Aristotle has a quote where he says, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And so it's really intended as a, as a, as a, um, a proverb to get people to work hard all the while. But the flip side of that is that making a mistake or multiple mistakes doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't make you a bad person. If you routinely, day after day, do bad things, and particularly if you're doing bad things by design, that makes you a bad person. But all of us, even the most wonderful people I know, we've all made mistakes. And that's just and that's just part of life. But if we're generally doing well or doing good, then, then that's who we are.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what would you all say to your 25-year-old self? <laughs>
3: I would say sleep more.
2: Mm. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'd say. Remember that the world is as it should be. (laughs) (laughs) And I I would, I would also,
3: I would also add it. it, It's going to get better. Mm-hmm. It's gonna get better. I had a, I had the a long view. Yeah, I had a long view. I had a, I a had, a, I, had a, I had a really rocky time as an adolescent in college, and there's some. My father was an alcoholic. We had some mental health issues. It was, it was, it was tough. And but if I if I known at age, as Bill say, if I'd known at age 25 how fabulous my life would be now with my wife and my kids and doing work that I love. I, I would have, I would have been a whole lot less anxious then.
1: But what you also told me was that what you had gone through helped make you resilient.
3: And I guess it's that idea as that yeah. it should be. It's an it's a, yeah it's an excellent it's an excellent point. I mean the model on resilience says that we want to face our own stresses as much as we can and not have people solve them for us, mm-hmm. but then be able to retreat to nurturing environments where people can sort of you know lick our wounds for us, right? Mm-hmm. And so and, you
1: said you have to have one nurturing.
3: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. So we, of course, analyze ourselves. <laughs> okay.
3: Ideally, too. Even better. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, this one's a very difficult question. What's your favorite meal?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Easy for me. Enchiladas, rice and beans.
0: Oh, yum. <laughs> what kind of enchiladas?
2: Cheese. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give a shout out to two Amy's.
3: I could go there with my wife and kids. <laughs> Every day, of the way we, we started going there when my wife is pregnant with my, my son, who's now 16, and we it's so it's wonderful.
2: Good. Beautiful <laughs> place.
0: And then, lastly, um, who, if you could sit next to anyone at dinner tonight, who would that be?
3: I'd, I'd be with my family.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same with me. Family. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you, you guys. Thank
2: you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you both.
0: Yeah. We're grateful to you for coming.